The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Let's ask the Lord's help. Father, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Go ahead and return right back to your feet, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're in this closing prayer here at the end of chapter 3. We'll read this morning verse 14 all the way through verse 21. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. So as I referenced just earlier, we'll continue to work together through this um, this magnificent prayer from the Apostle Paul. Paul was a great prayer. 
as you would expect, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. His prayers are worthy of study and consideration and, and modeling our own prayer life after him. And so you'll recall that first we consider together the posture of Paul in prayer as he bowed his knees before the Father, feeling the weight and majesty and glory of God and yet knowing that he is his Father. Then last week we began to look together at the petitions, the specific requests that the Apostle Paul was making as he came to his father. Remember I told you that to my eyes, they're each set apart by the word that. We read at the beginning of verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Then you see there in the second half of verse 17, 17b begins with that word that again, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then again in the second half of verse 19, there's another that, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So we spend our time on just kind of laying our eyes for the first time on that first request from Paul. And remember we discovered there that what Paul was asking God to do is that he would come, God would come and grant to these saints, these Christians in Ephesus, that they would be strengthened with power in their inner man. And you remember the, the heights to which Paul took this request. I asked you last week, what is the upper limit of Paul's prayer requests? The answer is the infinite glory of God. He asked that God would act according to. Remember we saw that was a, in proportion to, at a level proper for the infinitely holy God the one whose power knows no end, asked him to act in accordance with that, accordance with the riches of his glory, all that God is. Not just his power or his wisdom or his goodness, but the sum total of all that God is to come and act according to that. Now, if you've been with us here for any period of time, you know that we'll spend quite a bit of effort No few Sunday mornings and a whole lot of Wednesday nights really trying to get our eyes on the, the person and the character and the nature of God. Considering who he is and who he's revealed himself to be in his creation and in his word. And for many people, something like this, theology proper, really studying the, the being of God, it, it seems like very academic work. It feels like head in the clouds kind of stuff, but no real practical application. What does is, what is knowing the attributes of God have to do with my bank account? What does knowing the attributes of God have to do with trying to raise some children or caring for my aging parents? Well, to think like this is clearly to misunderstand who God is and who he's created us to be. Because I submit to you, there's nothing more practical than all the world than to know God as he has shown himself to be. Not only because that's what he's created us for. Not only because he has created us as beings with a longing to see him that we will never find any real satisfaction until we know God as he really is. And come to an awareness of the fact that we are surrounded by people that are pursuing satisfaction under the name of God by creating that God after their own image. They create a God that appeases their sensibilities. Then they seek satisfaction in that God and that doesn't come. And so they just keep trying again. And so Number one, we seek to know God as he really is. We seek to do theology, to think right thoughts and say right words about who God is because that's the only place we'll ever find real joy. 
But number two, in accordance with this prayer, we see that it is in a level commensurate with his infinite glory that he imparts this gift to his people, that he comes and strengthens us. So shouldn't we know something of his glory? Shouldn't we know something of his strength? Shouldn't we just think of his infinitude for a minute? Is there anything that stretches the human mind more than the infinite? Thinking about a God who has no bounds and no limits and whose perfections are immeasurable. There's nothing that hurts our head and hurts our heart and makes us feel tinier, quicker than that. And yet it's on that very basis that Paul is praying. That he's asking God to come and act in accordance with his infinite glory. His immeasurable glory to strengthen these people. Verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory... He might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. You don't know why so many people feel overwhelmed and seem to lack hope in the world. You don't know why so many who even claim the name of Christ, they find themselves just being blown about by every bad piece of news that comes their way. It's because they have a teeny tiny little God. What your heart needs, what your head needs, what your children need is to see this great, big, infinite God as he really is in all his scariness. To see this God as he really is. And it's only then that our problems begin to shrink. It's only then that our comforts, our reputation, our wealth, it's only then that those things cease to be the center of the universe. It's only when you see the true center of all, again I say, as he really is, that everything else seems to come into proper proportion. We seem to be able to take the things that come our way. So what do we need? We need to see him as he is, as sovereign Lord of all the universe. But number two, I find that many Christians, even those who strive to see God as he really is and who do theology, try to think right thoughts and speak right words about God, that many of those who, who have some understanding of who the biblical God is, they find their prayer lives to be weak and, and lacking almost pur purposeful, purposeless at times, wondering, what, what am I doing here? Because nothing seems to be coming. And for, for those of you that might find yourself in this camp, I say to you this morning, part of your problem may be you don't realize all that he has promised to you. With all my heart and with all my soul, he said to the prophet Jeremiah, I will not cease to do you good. You don't get half measures of God. For God to be your God and you to be, her people, to be his people means that he has pledged the fullness of who he is to doing only that which is best for you. So my hope for us as a people in part this morning is that we would come to rest our hopes and to settle our feet on the reality that there is this endless reservoir of God's glory. His wisdom, his power, his knowledge, his goodness, his mercy, his righteousness. All that God is running underneath our feet. And he's calling out to us that if we would just stop for a moment and ask those things that he has pledged to us, if we would pray with audacity like the Apostle Paul to say, God, don't just come in half measures, but come according to the riches of your glory, that maybe there would be some radical change in our prayer life, our spirit life, us as a church. Because we rob ourselves when we don't drive our hearts back to this. We rob ourselves when we allow our hearts to rest on idols or when we limit our prayers to the pragmatic and to the practical. When we always deal with the stuff that's right in front of us, when our prayers are always just about our friend's broken leg or our cousin who's in the hospital, when we're always dealing with the practical and the 
the stuff that's sitting right in front of our face. And we never go beyond that to the deeper and the spiritual and ask God to work according to his power like this. We rob ourselves of, of much. So again, my hope for us is that as we work, I don't know how many more weeks we have in this prayer, but as we work through it together, that you'll find your own prayers just changing. Very rare is it that a man learns some new trick for prayer and all of a sudden his prayer life just gets lined out. I can't give you 10 pointers to how to fix your prayer life because I haven't fixed my own prayer life yet. But as we sit under the word of God, by the spirit of God, slowly we will find that our words are changing, that our heart is changing, that our mind is changing as a result that our life and our communion with God is changing. So we look, to, look together this morning at the first part of verse 17. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So there's one thing that we have to have just absolutely settled in our minds this morning before we consider what Paul's saying here. And that is this. These people that he is writing to are Christian people. It's clear based on the way that he's spoken to them all throughout this letter. You remember, he's writing to those who are the saints those who are the saints in Ephesus. In the fourth verse of chapter one, he says that they have been loved by God and chosen in Christ. In verse seven, uh, excuse me, 13, he says that in him, they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation and believed in Christ. Chapter two, verse five, he says that they've been made alive together with Christ. Verse eight in chapter two, he says that they've been saved by grace through faith. So Paul is writing to a distinctly Christian people. And it's very important that we have our minds fixed on that or we're not going to understand what he's talking about here when he speaks of Jesus dwelling in their heart. Again, Paul is talking to people that are not just coming to trust in Christ for the first time. This isn't a, a prayer of evangelism or a prayer for conversion. This is a prayer, as we discovered in the beginning, for progress in the Christian life. The Apostle Paul is praying for sanctification in their life. That's why this prayer ends, verse 19, with him saying that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. So it's with that backdrop that we come here and we find him praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now the reason I took time out to make that point is because many of you, like me, grew up in churches where that was talk of conversion. That's just the common vernacular. I asked Jesus to come into my heart. Would you like to ask Jesus to come into your heart? So we hear that and very many, very often, our minds are drawn right back to those moments. Evangelizing our children or calling someone to repent of their sin and trust in Christ. And so we come to this prayer here. And the Apostle Paul, he's asking God to do something in the inner man of these Christians so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. And you remember, hopefully, what I said two weeks ago, that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, he's not going to waste his time praying for things that these people don't need or that they already have. So he's praying for something clearly that is a great need of these saints. So we gotta ask, well, what's he talking about here then? Is the apostle Paul indicating that you can come to Christ Jesus, you can trust him in him as Lord, but you don't have him dwell in your heart until you reach some threshold of holiness. That there's only some level of spiritual maturity across which you can say, yes, I have Jesus dwelling in my heart. We know that's certainly not the case. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. 
2 Corinthians 13, 5. <coughs> Paul says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Colossians 1, 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Lee and Lee, I'm giving you a job. Will you pray for my voice? The remainder of this, please. <clears throat> so we see very clearly in the Christian life this picture of this double union. That when someone comes to place their faith in Christ Jesus, it can properly said, be said that Christ is in you. This is the hope of your glory. That Christ dwells in you. And, and we know, as I just said, this is a, this is a double union of sorts. We, we see Jesus talking about him and us and us in him. John 6, 56, Jesus says, whoever feeds on my... <clears throat> Satan does not want you to hear this. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus makes clear that there is this double union of sources happening, that we are in Christ and Christ is in us and that our only hope for any of God's saving blessings, they only come. Remember what we talked about in Ephesians chapter 1. What does Paul refer to the Christian as? Always in Christ. In Christ. It's only in Christ in that kind of meaningful, vital, living union that man can have any hope of salvation, of redemption, of a relationship, of blessings before God. So he's saying here that if you're in Christ, then Christ lives in you. And where would Christ dwell other than in the hearts of men? It's, it's the inner man. That inner essence of who you are, your mind and your will and your emotions, that's where Jesus comes to dwell. So if you're a Christian, then yes, Jesus is in your heart. We can still sing when Jesus came into my heart or when you ask your little three or four year old where Jesus is. You don't have to spank them if they point right here. It's proper to say that Jesus dwells in the hearts of believers. And the way that Jesus comes to dwell in your heart is he comes by his spirit. By the work of the Holy Spirit. The passage that David read a portion of to you earlier, it's the upper room discourse. And especially in light of, I don't know how much longer we have before my voice gives out, I'll go ahead and give you your homework now. Your homework for today is to go home and read John 14, 15, and 16. See the way that Jesus speaks about the promise of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the giving of the Holy Spirit. I want you to draw particular attention to there in chapter 16 where he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Those who have just spent the whole of the last three years with Christ Jesus, witnessing his miracles and hearing his teaching and touching his, his face with their own hands, he looks at them and says, this is good. It's good that I go away because once I go away, I will send the spirit that my father has promised. 
That's what he says, John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. But then he goes on to say, so he's talking now about the spirit, the spirit that will come and that will be with you and that will dwell with you, that will dwell in you. In verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live in that day. You will know that I am in the father and you in me and I in you. Verse 23, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our home within him. I want you to think about this just rationally. Where is Jesus today in his flesh? The right hand of the father. Jesus today in his flesh is seated at the right hand of the father and by our spirit, where are we? With him. Even as our bodies are here in this place, worshiping in Crosby, Texas, by our spirit, we are joined together with Christ at the right hand of the father. Even as his flesh is in heaven right now, where? At the right hand of the father, yet by his spirit, he comes to dwell within us. Do you see it? Us in him and he in us. And this is what makes the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Again, talk about heavy theology. This is what makes the doctrine of the Trinity so precious to us. This, this inseparability of the Spirit and the Father and the Son. So it can properly, properly be said that if you have the Son, you have the Father. And if you have the Spirit, you have the Son. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 goes like this. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's making a difference between those who are controlled by the flesh, the fleshly men who are still enslaved to sin, the fleshly men who know nothing of the spirit of God, the fleshly men who cannot do anything to please God. He says, but you're not like this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, there's a caveat, what does it mean to be in the spirit and not to be in the flesh? If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. So to be a Christian isn't just to have Christ in me, it's to have Christ in me via the Spirit. So if the Spirit of God is in you, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're still the fleshly man. So he says, in fact, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, have that phrase in your head, the Spirit of God. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So you've got the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ coming to dwell in a man. And by that, who's coming? Christ. He's not left you. He has come to you. He's come to live in you just as you're in him. Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Christ Jesus coming to dwell it by his spirit in the hearts of his believers. That's a reality for every single Christian. And it's an interesting thing that if you talk to most Christians and you'll often find them talking about how much affection and love they have for the father. I love God. God is my father and I have, I have affection. I have joy in my heart that I can come boldly before the throne of my father. And almost every praise and worship song we sing talks about Christ Jesus and the love and affection that we have for him. But then there's 
the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, even forgotten to be a person, spoken of as an it or a, or a force or an essence of something. Forgetting this third person of the Holy Trinity, it is he who comes to dwell in you. It is he who comes to unite you to Christ like this. That this is our hope as a Christian, this unity, that everything we enjoy in Christ, it comes by this work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so we see a couple of parallels here between verse 16 and verse 17 when he talks about us being strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. We certainly see parallels between the spirit and Christ. We see parallels between our heart and our inner person, but we still don't quite understand then why is Paul talking like this? If these people already have Christ in their heart by the spirit of God, if they're already united to him and he to them, if he dwells in them and they in him, then why is he now coming and praying for this kind of thing? Is he, is he confused? Is he worried that some of them might not really be Christian? Why does he pray like this? Well, the answer comes in the word dwell. You see the word dwell there, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, the Greek word that's used here, it's something a bit stronger than just an overnight visit or, or laying down to, to sleep somewhere at night. This isn't, a, this isn't an Airbnb or this isn't a, a vacation home. This is setting up shop. This is more than a visit. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul has in mind here. It's a, it's a settling down. That Christ may come and settle down in your house. That he might come himself and, and, and make himself comfortable, make himself at, at home. Now we've got to realize that Paul is speaking in spatial terms about spiritual realities. And that's always going to stretch us pretty quickly. Talking about a, a place where Christ Jesus comes to dwell, but we're talking about a spiritual reality. A thing that can't be measured. We don't figure out how much, our, how much space there is in our chest cavity, and that's the room that Christ has to roam. But I think this is what he's driving us to. And we see this in part by the next two petitions, because he goes on to say that his hope is that we may know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God. It seems that what Paul has in mind here isn't just that Christ would come to dwell in you, and it isn't even just that Christ would come to dwell in you to stay, like to abide in you, it seems as though he's talking about something of degree or, or extent or magnitude at which Christ's presence is known in our heart. Now, obviously, nobody can have just a piece of Christ. Christ is not divisible. Christ is, Christ is not composed of parts. It's not as though you can say, well, I've got Jesus' right arm, but I don't have the whole of him within me. And so nobody gets a piece. Nobody gets a part of Christ. And Christ can't come to dwell just partly in someone. It isn't as though what they're saying is, look, Christ comes and he's got one foot in my heart, but one foot in the world. And it's not as though he's saying that Christ comes for a while and then he leaves me when I act badly. So it seems to me perhaps what he's talking about here is that in the inner man, in the heart, that it may look like the kind of place where Jesus lives. It may look like the kind of place where Jesus has set down roots and has made himself comfortable. You can learn a lot about a person based on what their house looks like. You show up at my home and you'll learn some things. Even if we're not there to give you the grand tour, you'll learn some things about our house and about our, I mean, about our life and about our priorities just based on what kind of place do we live in. So it seems to me that perhaps what the Apostle Paul is talking about here is the way in which men have come to an awareness of the spirit of Christ in them and the way in which they are submitting their lives over to Christ as their ruler and their Lord. 
Quite similar to what we're going to get to when we come to chapter 5 and he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. You either have the Holy Spirit or you don't have the Holy Spirit. You either have Christ in your heart or you don't have Christ in your heart. But there are certainly those times when it doesn't look like he lives there. There are certainly those times when it looks like he's got a sloppy roommate. So if you forgive me for talking in these, again, spatial terms, it seems like what he's talking about here is the Christian being increasingly conformed to the image of God. Colossians 3.15 says this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. He goes on to say, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So he's talking about ruling in your heart and dwelling in you richly. I think this is the picture. How many Christians, the question isn't, am I filled with all the fullness of God? The question isn't, does my heart look like a place where Christ Jesus has set up roots? The question isn't, am I filled with the Holy Spirit? The question is, how much do I have to do to get to heaven? How holy do I have to be to guarantee my spot? How much sin can I hold on to while still having assurance that I belong to Christ? Paul won't allow us to settle for that. Paul is praying for himself. He's praying for these saints. Through them, ultimately, he's praying for us. That we would feel that tension and that war that goes on. Romans chapter 7, we see two men at war within the Apostle Paul. There's still that bastion of flesh that remains, that it likes things the way that they once were, and will fight with anything in them to hold on to it. Well, at the same time, you've got the Spirit of God within you making this a dwelling place. Settling down and taking up root and you're going to feel tension in the middle of this. That's why Paul's praying for strength. The more Christ Jesus sets down roots within your heart, the more he begins to clean out that which does not belong. The more that other inner man is going to rise up. The more you're going to feel that tension and that war. For many people, they believe that once I come to Christ Jesus and I have his spirit within me, then it's just sailing from here to heaven. But instead, it's quite the opposite. It says we make war on our flesh and we seek to, to mortify our sin and continually try to give ourselves over and watch that old man put to death. You're going to find war in your heart that you once never knew. You may be wondering, why did I sign up? I thought Christ is a prince of peace. I thought I came to God seeking true and eternal peace. I was a whole lot more peaceful when I was just going the way of the world. He's saying, no, there will be war there. Christ Jesus is going to rule in your heart. He's going to reign in your heart. He's going to live in you and your inner man. It's going to be painful at times. And the way that he does this with the coming of the Holy Spirit, almost, I heard one man refer to the Holy Spirit this week like a homemaker. Like the one that's setting up shop there and preparing this, this place. You know, Jesus said, I, I go to the Father to prepare a place for you. So Christ Jesus goes and he's preparing a home in heaven with the Father for us. And what does he do? He sends his spirit to prepare our hearts as a place where Christ more fully dwells. And so we, we come to Christ Jesus and we've been taught since little boys, ask Jesus into my heart and he comes in and then they tell us, well, he's going to do some stuff once he's in there. He, he's not going to just, just nudge his way in there between all the filth and the sin and the worldly idols. He's going to come in and he's going to do some work. And you say, okay, well, I'm, I'm okay for that. A little bit of spring cleaning never hurt anybody. And then he starts tearing down walls and pouring concrete and jackhammer and stuff that had been there for a long, long time. He throws some family heirlooms out the back pasture. Whoa, I didn't sign up for this. He says, well, I live here. And this is what it will look like. And it will be painful at times and it will be scary at times. And you'll wonder who's in charge here. 
But that's the picture I think that he's painting for us. Paul is praying more and more, even as the outer man wastes away, that this inner man may be renewed and strengthened so that as Christ comes and he fills them and sets up shop, they may, may experience his power that is necessary. When we think about the inner man, we think about our thoughts. Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the Father, he said, look, there's some things I need to tell you, but you're not ready to receive them yet. Not until my spirit comes and does his work, and then you'll be able to comprehend the words that I'm saying to you. And how often do we find ourselves, even on this end of our conversion, as we stand here today as Christian people, how often do we find ourselves coming to the word of God and our minds can't handle it? And I'm not talking about intellectually. I'm just talking about those old sinful fleshly thoughts that bear up and you think, God, would you give me a mind like Christ? Would you give me a mind to believe these words, to continue to speak this truth to myself, no matter what my lying eyes say to me? And he comes in and he takes over your affections. Don't you find that one of the rules in the SEAL household is we don't want our girls to date boys, text boys, get entangled with boys until they are of an age where they can be considering marriage. And as in every home, you'll have varying degrees of success with this, of course, but that was our standard. That is our standard. And part of the reason is because look, the chances that you're going to marry whatever boy you're going to get entangled with right now is very, very, very slim. But your heart's going to get wrapped up. Even if you fight for purity. Even if you watch your language. You cannot come and, 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 and romantically entertain someone without your heart getting bound up with theirs. And eventually that's going to get ripped apart. How many of us have allowed our hearts to get wrapped up with the idols of this world? And then Christ Jesus comes and as he tears us away from those, and he rips away the things that ought not belong, yeah, it's going to sting. And yeah, it's going to hurt. But it's necessary and it's good. But he does this with our, with our heart and with our mind, with our affections and with our desires. We've gotten so used to eating the candy and the junk food of this world. And he comes and he offers us steak and we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to desire it. And so in all these ways, he's coming and he's transforming us by his spirit in the image of Christ. Those who are once deformed in the image of this world. I speak to the telos kids on Monday morning. We're working together through Romans 12. And whenever we talk about being transformed in the image of God and not being deformed in the image of this world, I give them the picture of Play-Doh. The world is constantly trying to mold you into a little Mr. Bill that they can crush you. So we're being constantly transformed in our inner man in the image of God. And he says that this comes through faith. It's by grace through faith that you are saved. And it will be by grace through faith that you continue to be saved. 2 Timothy 4, 7, towards the end of Paul's life, he says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Those are not three things. Those are one. I ran a race. I fought a fight. And it was all for faith. It is by this faith that we cling to Jesus Christ, and it's only by faith that we apprehend anything that is of Christ. How do, you, how do you enjoy food? You taste it. How do you enjoy music? You hear it. How do you enjoy a hug? You feel it. How do you have any benefit from Christ? It's through faith. It's a way by which we apprehend all that is his, and it doesn't just come at the beginning, I've trusted in Christ. It's all the way through as he's doing this cleansing. As he's setting up roots, as he is taking away that which does not belong and demolishing the things that need to be torn down. All of this comes to us through faith. Galatians 3.2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing through faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected 
by the flesh? How many men do this? They come to Christ Jesus in faith. They come knowing it's all of Christ Jesus. I'm just clinging to the cross. And then as they find themselves being cleansed and coming to an awareness of their sin, what happens? They go try to work it out on their own. They don't realize it's by that same faith in that same Christ that this work is taking place. That's why in Galatians 2.20, I've referenced this earlier. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But I didn't go on. Because he goes on to say, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's from faith to start to finish. It's a fight for faith. It's a fight to cling to Christ in faith. And this is not an easy thing. I always have great fear for these Christians that say, look, I've come to Christ Jesus and the Christian walk is just so easy for me. I'm, I'm praying, it's just easy. Reading my Bible, it's just easy. Worshiping, it's just easy. More to, I see a sin, boom, I just shoot it down. It's easy. I wonder if you've even entered the battle. Because to seek to follow Christ, to seek to fight for faith, to have him doing this work within us, it's not for sissies. It's war. Go back and read Romans 7 in this turmoil in the inner man. It is war. It's war on sin. It's war on Satan. It's war on our own flesh. And so this is what Paul is praying for these people here. That they may be strengthened with power in their inner man because they've been weakened by sin. They've been weakened by sin. They've been weakened by doubt. They've been weakened by faithlessness. And so he's praying that their faith would grow strong, that their love would grow hot, that their bodies and souls wouldn't give out along the way. Because we know how prone we are to wander. We know how easy it is to wander away, to get distracted or discouraged, or as Christ is doing this cleaning work, how many of your neighbors come by and go, whoa, 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 the house was fine as it was. You just needed some new drapes and some paint on the wall. They discourage you that it's not worth this work. It's not worth this pressing on. It's not worth the noise and the headache. So again, I say the Christian life, it's not one for sissies. So we seek to go against the tide of this world and the tide of our own life. We need this power that Paul prays for. And we don't have the ability. We've got to recognize this is not an ability that we have in and of ourselves. That's why he prays in this way. What did I say? He only prays about things that they don't have and that they need. If they could manufacture the faith, this would have just been a bunch of statements of man up. Put on your big boy britches. Get your life together. Start looking more like Christ. But he doesn't go to them and say a word about this. Oh, they'll work. And it will be war. But it's Christ's work in them. And so he goes to the Father and says, Father, do this thing. Show up by the working of your endless power and strengthen them in faith. Strengthen them by your spirit. I'm thinking about when Jesus departed. He, promised, he had promised the Holy Spirit to his, his friends, his disciples. And he comes after the resurrection and reveals himself to them. And then he, he tells them in Acts 1.8, you need to hide here for a bit. But then you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. And I wonder how that story would have played out if they would have run out in their own power and ability. 
You know the impetuousness of Peter if he would have said, no, 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 no. Hey, man, I sat next to him. I know all the stuff. I'm your leader now. Charge ahead. And yet how many Christians seek to walk this thing out and fight the fight of faith and they do it completely with no reliance upon the spirit? Believing that they got to, that a proper Christian life, that a proper masculine Christianity, that you reach some place where this work of the Holy Spirit is just no longer necessary. That's what it means to be a real grown-up Christian. And how do you know if you're that kind of Christian? How do you know if you're one that's seeking to do this in the flesh and not one that's seeking to do this by faith in Christ? Not one that's seeking to do it by the power of the Spirit? Well, one of the primary ways is you find that you don't avail yourself to the means by which God does this work. This work that Paul is praying for the Holy Spirit to come and do, it's not always just some lightning bolt immediately from heaven. It's not the Holy Spirit just comes up and whammo, he makes you holy. He works through means. He works through the reading of the word. He works through prayer. He works through worship. He works through communion. He works through the gathering of the saints. And so one of the surest signs that you're seeking to walk this Christian life and to fight this fight of faith in your own power is if you're not availing yourself to the means. If you're not giving yourself over more and more and more. If your first thought when you wake up in the morning is that I can't take one step in faith today unless I've gone before my father. Unless I've asked him to work in this way. And so I think it's somewhat appropriate and fitting that on a morning when we consider this need for this strengthening. This need for Christ in us to do this work. That we come to the Lord's table together. That we come and we partake of this ordinance that he's given us. It's a very clear picture not just of all that Christ has done. And not just of all that Christ will do in his return, but as his promise to meet us right now and strengthen us in our inner man. So we take his flesh and we take his blood and we receive it by faith into ourselves. Father, we praise you. We thank you. We know, Father, this work you've called us to is beyond ourselves. We know that it's all by the work of the Spirit by the power of his hand, that we can have any hope of walking in holiness. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people who pray like Paul, to pray with all boldness and confidence that you will work in us in this way. Father, I thank you. You answered a prayer just now. You've, you've allowed my voice to hold on, and so I personally thank you for your grace and your mercy and your strength this morning. Father, I pray you prepare our hearts now as we come to this table. Pray that we'd feast on Christ and be strengthened by him. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.